MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 30 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, June 25th. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. So first, we want to thank Brian Greer for speaking with us last week about the SEPA process or the Classified Information Procedures Act. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend checking it out. There's lots of important information about what will likely be the next steps in the documents case. And you get to hear it from a guy, total pro, guy who spent his career in the CIA litigating those issues day in and day out. So well, speaking of the documents case, this week we had a magistrate judge granted Jack Smith's motion for a protective order over the unclassified discovery. And then, of course, Jack filed notice that he's begun production of that material. Additionally, Judge Cannon has set the trial date, and it is unclear whether she'll hold the proceedings, you know, the final trial, in West Palm Beach, Miami, or the more conservative Fort Pierce. Yeah, and she set that trial date for August 14th. I don't know that that'll hold. We'll talk about that in a second. Bet a lot of money that it will not. But <laughs> <laughs> but we also have a lot of January 6th investigation news. That probe continues. We'll discuss the Washington Post reporting this week about early delays in opening the investigation, along with new witnesses testifying before that grand jury in D.C., and what that could signal about how far along Jack Smith is in the probe. Um, this includes major breaking news about new witnesses. And finally, we'll cover the findings of the Georgia investigation into voter fraud and how that bears on the special counsel's January 6th investigation. But Andy, let's start out with the documents case. What what did we learn this week? <laughs> so much. Well, as we do every week, we learn we pick up the pieces and, uh, and can really kind of make some interesting uh, observations about what's happening. So Really, the first thing that happened this week is Judge Reinhardt. You're going to remember him as being the judge who signed the search warrant that enabled the FBI to go in and search Mar-a-Lago last August. Well, Judge Reinhardt this week approved the protective order for unclassified materials. So a couple of things are relevant here. First, this is a very, very standard first step in any federal criminal case. Um, and in fact, what happens usually and what happened here is the two sides get together. The government usually drafts the protective order. The protective order lays out the rules around how the evidence in the case that has to be given from the prosecution to the defendant, how that stuff can be handled. So in this case, they said things like, you can only share this information, this evidence with people who are on the defense team. So that's the defendant himself and his team of lawyers. Trump can't post on social media things that he's learned in the evidence, things of that nature. So the government writes those rules, and the defendant's attorneys have already agreed to it. So they present the order in draft form to the judge. The judge really just basically rubber stamps it, agrees with the terms that the two sides have already agreed to. Yeah, and one thing that really stood out to me in the protective order, we talked about this a little bit last week, that has been approved this week, is that, you know, they said there's going to be 
you know, witness testimony, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but um, of the unclassified production of Discovery, you, you the reason that you can't share this with the public or put it out on True Social or the reason Trump has to sit in a room with his lawyers to look at it and can't take copies with him is because it could harm ongoing investigations. And they say plural. So I, I don't Andy, I am I'm assuming they're like, what other ongoing investigations? If this is it for the documents case, I, I imagine maybe there are some cross witnesses in January 6th or the riot. I'm like, I'm not sure what other ongoing investigations um, that he's talking about, unless that's just something you put in the standard form to say that this is why there's a protective order. But he mentions that specifically. It is pretty standard language, but for a lot of reasons that are relevant here to this case. So it's important to remember that even when you're preparing for trial, there is still a fair amount of investigative activity that's still going on. So the government might be identifying new witnesses and interviewing people for the first time. You certainly wouldn't ha want to have someone publicly exposing evidence, like on Truth Social, uh, that might undermine witnesses' independent recollections that you might want to have them testify about, right? You never want to, like... Um, you know, you never want to poison a witness with information from someplace else. You just want what they saw or heard or experienced. So there's ongoing investigation relative to this actual case. But we also know that in this case, you've got the January 6th case going on. You have all these other kind of splintery investigative matters that seem to be connected, like potential financial frauds. We have the infamous live golf subpoena that we still haven't quite figured out. <laughs> so really any of that stuff that's arguably connected to Trump, um, you could fall into that category of ongoing investigation. So there's a lot of potential here on that count. And I think it was uh, judicious of them to, to include that language in the order. Yeah, I agree. Um, also, aside from Judge Reinhardt approving that protective order, pretty much immediately, Jack Smith turned around and filed his uh, discovery production um, information, a uh, briefing on, on what he's producing. Uh, and that says to me a, a lot of things. First of all, I mean, he was just, he's ready to go with everything. And not only is he ready to go with everything, but I mean, some of the things in here, he's got all the testimony transcripts. So Trump has probably presumably now found out everyone who testified against him. <laughs> That's absolutely Audi right. <laughs> audio recordings, plural, by the way, of Trump during meetings with writers. We only know of one. Um, and that that those have been handed over. Right. Trump's Trump's own public statements uh, that are going to be used against him in court, which is important. That's a big bucket. <laughs> it's a huge <laughs> list of things. It's we know a huge bucket. Even this week, he's continued to make um, really, really bad public statements. Uh, confessions. Yeah, basically confessions on Fox News. That there's a whole file of confessions on Fox News. I'm sure at the special counsel's office. Yep. Yep. And he's handing over Brady material. Uh, he's made a demand for reciprocal discovery. One like even he he's like not only has he has he handed over the surveillance footage of Walt Nada doing, you know, playing musical boxes, but he's actually said, and to save you time, here are the exact timestamps of the relevant uh, video that we will be using in, in court. So he's got uh, you know, you and I talked a little bit about, it. I'm like, do you think he waits and then prepares his whole pros memo first? Or does he have it as he goes along? He's been clearly doing this as he goes along, because 
He waited. He wasted no time. He just once the protective order was signed, he said, all right, here we're producing. Here's everything we have right down to the timestamps for you. It's all ready to go. And again, this is the unclassified stuff. Um, it, but it's it's all still relevant to this particular uh, prosecution and is under protective order. So Donald Trump can't share it. But, you know, what again, what struck me, there's a lot of, uh, you know, templated language in this in this document. But really what struck me is how ready uh, Jack Smith and his team was to just get the ball rolling. Yeah, no question. One of the biggest things that lawyers on both sides try to do over the course of this sort of litigation is to kind of manage their relationship with the judge. Um, and so they're very conscious of not wanting to ask for too much. Like if I, if I make the judge mad now, they'll take it out on me later, that sort of stuff. So I see part of this as being the special counsel team wants to start out on a very solid footing with this judge. Like, hey, judge, we're ready Here's all of our stuff prepared ahead of time. We're not delaying at all. We are not going to slow this thing down one minute. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to try to meet all our obligations immediately and keep the pressure on the defense. Now, defense, you know, they have a lot of options to slow things down. I'm sure we'll see that later. But again, I, th I see this as part of the uh, issue of trying to manage that relationship with the judge. The other thing I thought was interesting is it's good to shed a little bit of light on what constitutes Brady material. Brady is kind of the reference to Supreme Court holdings that establish um, information, defines the information that the government has to turn over to the defendant. And this is particularly stuff that people who aren't familiar with trials would say, like, why on earth would you want to turn that over to a defendant? It's all stuff that could be good for the defendant. So it's right. Exculpatory information. That's right. That, and, and, and it is a protection for, for criminal defendants, um, as is like the fourth amendment or your ability to plead the fifth. That's exactly it right. Protects, yeah. It protects you from the government withholding any evidence that might help your case. That's they right. can't do that. We saw it in Manafort. Do you remember when he got mm -hmm. some additional stuff from Rick Gates and, uh, and Mueller was like, Oh, 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 we just got some additional testimony from Rick Gates that could be exculpatory under Brady for Manafort. Here, we're handing it all over here, here, here. You yeah. Know, and that just, that protects the case. The Brady laws recognize the fact that the government has many, many more investigative resources than the defendant does. And they're, whenever they come across information that's relevant and helpful to the defendant, they have to turn it over. So it's, you know, exculpatory, like you said, could also be information that could mitigate or reduce the defendant's potential sentence exposure. Uh, or information that you could use to attack one of the government's witnesses when they testify. So if I'm the government and I have a witness and I know that this witness maybe committed fraud so at some point in their life, took a fraud conviction, I have to turn that over. Even though it's not relevant to this case, the defendant's attorney might want to attack my witness on cross-examination and expose the fact that they've been convicted once before, essentially of lying or committing fraud. That's relevant to the what they what they call the witness's uh, truth and veracity, like their uh, their uh, history of telling the truth or not. So, like all that bad stuff Rick Gates did, That's <laughs> the exactly government right. had to say, you "Look, this guy's a this guy's a scumbag. He's our witness. Here's all of his scumbag stuff." Exactly. Um, and we have to hand that over. And if they don't, that's detrimental to the case. If you withhold Brady uh, it, material yeah. knowingly, I mean, that's, yeah. That's if you commit news. a Brady violation, that's reversal. So that could, you know, that can reverse a conviction, throw the entire case out permanently. So that the stakes are pretty high. 
Yeah. Um, also, um, some stuff going on with uh, Judge Aileen Cannon, our favorite. Uh, as I said earlier, she set the trial date for August 14th of this year, folks, <laughs> not next year. <laughs> um, it is a rocket docket down there. They get things done very fast. And that is probably the next available date because the government said we would need 21 days. So that's probably the soonest a 21 day trial could happen. And so she scheduled it. But as Brian Greer told us, you know, former uh, assistant general counsel over at CIA, SEPA expert, there's going to be so many motions and uh, and we haven't even gone over the the handing over of the classified documents in discovery. This is all just all the unclassified stuff that's been approved recently and production started on. All of that stuff is going to be litigated behind closed doors uh, with the judge, the DOJ, the prosecutors, the defense counsel. Uh, motions in limine regarding the classified documents are going to happen all behind closed doors. All of that stuff's going to take time. I imagine with even with the unclassified stuff, Andy, you know, in this in this uh, motion filed or the I guess the briefing filed by Jack Smith about what he's starting to produce or what he has produced. There's a, a demand for reciprocal discovery from the defense team over to the Department of Justice. And I I imagine Trump's going to be like, we need 10 million years to hand that over. <laughs> and so then there'll be a battle about the briefing schedule for that and the, We're and the discovery. A brief. It's a beautiful brief. <laughs> it's the best brief. Tremendous. You've never seen anything like Nobody's it. Nobody's ever seen it, this. They said, the sir, brief this is the best brief. <laughs> the brief called me with tears in its eyes. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. Um, People have asked me to stop doing the Trump voice on this very serious podcast. Okay. I, I apologize. All right. I'll stop as well. You, you're, now, you're, 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 ta- you're teaching me bad habits. I'm sorry. I've got I've to straighten up my game here. I um, probably won't stop. But, you know, those <laughs> those things are going to take months and months, as, as Brian Greer predicted. And many experts have said um, this trial might not start until after the election because of all of that stuff yeah. that has to happen under SEPA processes before we even get to public motions in limine, trying to get rid of the Corcoran notes or, you know, whatever, yeah. which would, which would trigger that 11th uh, circuit appeal pretty quickly, but it's still yeah. going to take time. Yeah. And like you just said, any one of those adverse rulings, particularly against the defendant could, will likely, uh, launch it into a series of appeals and that slows things down even more. So yeah, the August 14th is, uh, that's, it's fun to think that that might happen, but it's, it's really not. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping Jack's just like, here's all my things, whatever you want to object to, just do it in bulk. So we only have to go to the 11th circuit once. Okay. Right. Cause <laughs> we don't have six times to go two months up to an 11th circuit yeah. appellate. But I imagine as the 11th circuit was very pretty expedited, uh, in the special master, uh, case, I don't know why I just said that, like Christopher Walken, special master case. <laughs> Um, wow. Uh, I, I imagine it would be expedited here too. But again, even expedited 11th Circuit Court or, or Circuit Court of Appeals rulings take two to three months. So it's, you know, it's yeah. delay, delay. It, 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 we'll see that. Um, and part of that is hard to avoid. They're complicated issues and they have to be researched and briefed. And then, you know, the movement you submits to teach a brief. the judge what the words mean. <laughs> That's right. And then, and then the other side gets to file a response brief and then the moving movement gets to file a response to the response. So it, it, that, that process really drags out. I think the really interesting question that came up is the one you mentioned about where all this is going to take place. So as I understand it, the judge has indicated that she's going to basically start this case in, um, Fort Pierce, which is where she sits. She is the only judge in that courthouse. It's another kind of satellite courthouse from Miami. Um, and that's her home base. So she's going to start there. 
doesn't necessarily mean that the trial will be there, but it could. Um, so really, it could be there. It could be in West Palm Beach, which is a, another slightly larger kind of satellite office, or it could be in Miami. The big thing, though, is wherever the case is, that's essentially where they will pull the jury from. And when you start thinking about whether or not the local population is more or less friendly to the defendant, that raises some real issues for the prosecution. Yeah, although I will say I, I doubt that um, Jack Smith hasn't thought of that. Oh, sure, yeah. He seems like the kind of guy like, I don't care where the case is or who the judge is. This, These are the facts, and I'm going to – I have the facts. I'm going to pound the facts. I have the law. I'm going to pound the law. They yeah. can pound the table all day. Uh, so kind of a – I mean, kind of a baller move, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it is, and it, it does – He's not trying it, to play games, like right. try to get it in D.C. or, a, you know, a, a friendlier venue and bend the rules around it to make it happen. Like he's like, nope, a crime's happened in Florida. We'll go down there. Judge Eileen Cannon, bring it. Fine. Yeah, he's, he's insulating himself uh, and his team and the prosecution from all kinds of potential uh, complaints and motions and – um, you know, or even just the appearance of unfairness or rigged, rigged game or any of that nonsense. He's, he's really gone overboard, I think, to address that. Uh, but we'll see. You know, it only takes one really committed um, Trump-supporting ju- uh, juror to get in there and—, and Or judge. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then the, end this case with an acquittal. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. stakes are pretty high. Yeah, I concur. Um, we'll we'll see what happens, though. Again, this is one of many investigations uh, by the special counsel. We'll talk about more of them, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. 
Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. And we're back. All right, AG, we have got to move now uh, to, of course, the January 6th case. But that amazing article in the Washington Post this week from Carol Lennig, who talks about, tells the story essentially of what seems like reluctance on the part of the FBI and the Department of Justice to really start the January investigation focusing at the top and the sort of pushback that went on behind the scenes. So what do you think about the article? Well, I have my own feelings about this article. Um, I want to start off by saying that the fact that it was delayed to open this case for eight months is bad. I don't disagree with that. Um, I don't think it would make a difference if Trump were indicted eight months early or eight months late. If a Republican gets into office in 2024, it'll be pardoned. So uh, I, I, I don't really see... I mean, I understand we want to get this done before... Um, the election, obviously, but the, uh, but being convicted of any of these crimes, it will not stop him from running for or even winning the presidency if we don't vote. Um, there's nothing that bars him from holding office unless, of course, somehow the DOJ goes through the third section of the 14th Amendment, but that's a whole other show. Um, I would have called this article Trump Holdovers Sabotage Opening of 1-6 Probe. That's the way I would have put it. <laughs> Because this seems to be a whitewashing of what Mike Sherwin and a guy named Dan Tuono did uh, to folks who were trying to get the fraudulent elector scheme open, the, the, the investigation into Ali Alexander and Alex Jones and uh, all of those leaders of the, you know, Trump, I guess, above the boots on the ground people. Um, and the, when you read the article, all of the information in it sort of supports my thoughts here, right? Cooney, first of all, J.P. Cooney, who now works under Jack Smith, came to Mike Sherwin in February of 2021, a month after the insurrection. And he said, I want to open an investigation into Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, Roger Stone. And Sherwin said, no, no, you don't have the evidence. And then Sherwin met with Garland the following month when Garland got there and told him, we're doing a boots on the ground. We're doing a bottom up investigation. We're starting with the boots on the ground. That's the way to go. Here's where we are with the Oath Keepers. He didn't allow Cooney to attend that meeting, nor did he bring up the fact that Cooney wanted to open that investigation or that Cooney thought it was predicated. So Garland just didn't have that information. And then it wasn't until November, eight months later, when after a lot of hemming and hawing and delay by Republicans in the Senate, did we get a D.C. U.S. attorney? And did we get Olson, who is the uh, a NATSAC assistant um, attorney general? That's the team that would investigate the top of the coup. Yep. They didn't even get there until November. But as soon as they got there, Andy, uh, Graves put Wyndham in charge of the, the January of investigating the fraudulent electors. Brought him in from Maryland to do that. Yeah. Brought him in from Maryland. And then Wyndham's like, all right, cool. Ready? I'm going to subpoena all these guys. I want to subpoena Stone. I want to subpoena... I need to get Eastman's phone. I need to get Clark's phone. And Dan Tuono told him no. And Andy, you and I talked about this uh, early on in the show. Why did 
Why was it the inspector general agents from DOJ that seized Clark's phone and Eastman's phone and Scott Perry's phone? Why? And then the, and then the DOJ had to come in and put in a second warrant. We called it the search warrant two-step mm-hmm. to get what was on those phones from the inspector general. And it appears that that's because Wyndham couldn't get the FBI or Dan Tuono to sign off on these search warrants or uh, or subpoenas. So he went around. Uh, this was the workaround that him and Graves came up with. Was we'll, we'll, we'll go we'll go to the inspector. We'll go to the postal inspector. We'll go to the inspector DOJ inspector general. We'll get them to seize the phones. They had the DOJ had Eastman Clark and Perry's emails and information well before the January 6th committee got them. And I'm not just guessing or going off of the Washington Post reporting. It's an unsealed court filing. That's right. That shows when that in, that investigation began. It didn't, uh, I, the Washington Post here says it didn't, it didn't get opened until May or June of 2022 or April of 2022, but they were investigating it, circumventing the FBI that was being reluctant to allow them to do this as far back as November of 2021. So that whole thing was sort of left out of this article. And also what was left out of this article was Sherwin's previous shenanigans with trying to sabotage the Oath Keepers uh, investigation. So I'm a little on a different side of this. Now, I'm not saying, you know, and I've asked, why didn't Merrick Garland, why didn't Wyndham go to Garland? Why didn't somebody go to Garland and say, dude, what's going on? We can't get any, we can't get search warrants. We can't get this. Um, and, and, you know, why wasn't Garland more hands-on there or have a bigger sense of urgency or put more resources into this? And that is a problem. And I have long criticized that, but I, I'm afraid that it wasn't the Department of Justice. It wasn't Garland who was saying no to these things. Uh, it was the FBI, Dantuono and Sherwin, who was the previous DC U.S. attorney. So those are kind of my thoughts. And I was wondering what you thought about that, because, when I talked to Pete about it, he was like, well, that kind of stuff generally, you know, if Wyndham couldn't get a subpoena or whatever from Dan Tuono, that's not the kind of stuff that goes up to the attorney general. It goes up to the to Graves, the U.S. attorney. And then they figure out, oh, well, we'll just go to the IG or something like that. But but it seems like there's a lot that Garland didn't know. It it does. I, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of concerns with um, with the stuff in the article. And I should, to be fair, you know, I've been the subject of articles like this before when I was leading the FBI, and I know that what actually happens in meetings is not is hardly ever accurately reflected in articles about meetings and decisions and things like that. There's always more to the story than what we get in the reporting. That's just the nature of things. It's not to say it's bad reporting. But so I, with that caveat that there's probably more uh, to both sides of this story, there's a couple of things that really caused me great concern walking away from it. The first and most um, kind of remarkable thing to, to me is the absence of Chris Ray in this whole process. So the right? article makes clear that there was a decision made at headquarters early on that the Washington field office would handle the January 6th case and that headquarters would not get involved. And that's posed as some sort of like, oh, this is a, a great correction from the many mistakes made by the prior regime, i.e. me and my colleagues, of you know <laughs> having a, a, a strong headquarters involvement in the, the biggest, most impactful cases, which I should add was, is a long, <laughs> the entire history of the FBI is basically that, right? The biggest, mm. most impactful national, international cases, whatever, 
uh, are typically managed pretty closely by headquarters. Uh, but I'll put that aside for a minute. Chris Ray, by my count, went 22 months without getting a briefing on January 6th, according to this article. If that's true, this is on... This is the FBI director doesn't get a briefing on what the FBI itself says is the largest, most complicated, most significant case in its entire history. I, there is no logical explanation for that. Combine that with the fact that they basically pushed the entire thing off on the Washington field office, which is led by Steve D'Antuono, who, you know, I was a little bit surprised when I found out he was running the office. I'm really not sure what sort of experience Steve has with hands-on management of large, complicated criminal or national security cases. Yeah. And I just want to throw this in here during Durham's testimony this week uh, in front of uh, Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee. Jim Jordan spent several minutes praising Dan Tuono. Yeah. Uh, and so that makes him sus to me just based on that. Well, he's done a bunch of sus things, as my daughter would say. He, Steve Dantuono is the guy that got up in front of the country on the, either the day of or the day after January 6th and said the FBI had no information to indicate that there'd be any hostility or something. I don't remember how exactly he phrased it, but he basically said the FBI knew nothing. And we now know that that was absolutely not true. In the many of the January 6th defendant cases through the course of discovery, like the kind of discovery we we're just talking about here, we now know that there were numerous FBI informants who were in touch with the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and others and talked about, you know, the planning of things that were going on. So, um, so that's Steve D'Antuono. We also know Steve D'Antuono notably went in and gave, I guess, private testimony to that Jim Jordan committee and said a bunch of very critical things about the Justice Department. He has uh, He's the guy who allegedly refused to execute the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago until he was essentially forced to do it. He so seems like a, the bottleneck, right? You he seems like guy, the bottleneck. Right. If you have a leader of the field office who's really kind of out of step, at least with the way the Justice Department sees the investigation in the case, and you also have no involvement by the, dep the deputy or the director, the director of the FBI or the deputy director of the FBI, that's a situation where you could get a really lackluster response to a case that needs to be investigated thoroughly. And I'm not saying that the FBI didn't investigate January 6th. They did. They did a very aggressive and thorough and complete job of going from the ground up. But they waited a long time before they turned their investigative focus to Donald Trump and the people around him. And the and it danger wasn't until, of that is... It wasn't even until Graves got there, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, that that they were able to nail down this, the Oath Keeper seditious conspiracy case because Sherwin messed it That's up. That's right. So, so, yeah. You know, the danger there is you lose time, you lose evidence, you lose memories, you lose track of people. Um, that is not a good idea for any investigation. So I, I have a lot of, a lot of concerns about that. Um, I also think that, I mean, again, trying to be fair here, um, a lot of the meetings that are referred to in the article at DOJ and other places where they're talking about, should we shift the focus to look at the bigger fish that, you know, targets up above and decisions are ultimately made not to do that because DOJ and the lawyers involved decide maybe there's not enough evidence to open particular cases. Those are very hard decisions and reasonable people can differ about them, right? Yeah. It's not unreasonable for, and it's, it's in fact very common for the FBI to come in and be pushing things and say, hey, we want to open these five cases and DOJ pushing back and saying, you don't have quite 
enough predication to do that. And that's a, that's a frustrating at times, but still a comfortable tension between the two entities. It kind of keeps things in a reasonable balance. Here, it's totally different. Like eventually you have DMJ screaming, we, here, take the search warrant, please go do something. And the Bureau seems to be really reluctant. So my question yeah. is, is that reluctance based on one person's whatever, poor judgment, bias, view of the case, maybe, maybe in the case, that's, that's the role of the guy who's leading the charge from the Washington field office, Steve Antoine, or is this the very foreseeable result of an agency that has been relentlessly under attack for five years being dragged through the woodshed time and time and time again for decisions that were made in 2016 and 2017, all of which have been validated, by the way. Nevertheless, let's put that mm -hmm. aside. This is what happens. These sorts of baseless attacks about politicization in the FBI raise the threshold of how decisions are made and, and how investigations are pursued because people don't want to become the next me. Nobody yep. wants to be fired and publicly dragged through the mud and humiliated and investigated by one entity after another, after another, after another, and your John Durham's of the world and your Bill Barr's going out and tell the world, you know, what, what, a ter what terrible things the FBI did. Now we're going to go investigate them. All of that stuff has a corrosive impact on the people in the organization who very reasonably conclude, like, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. And even unconsciously, I think it causes a, a leaders in those meetings around those tables to really question, double question, triple question whether or not they could or should go forward with a particular matter. And that, I think, can end up being a very dangerous thing for the country. Ah, uh, yeah, that's what I think. And, and uh, you know, I agree. Even if it's, if it's the one or two guys that are bottlenecking it, using that as an excuse, um, it's a very real threat to the actual agents uh, and analysts on the ground. Like, when, you know, when I think of uh, the National Guard being delayed, being sent out, and I think of Piot and those guys, like five guys in an office on a telephone saying, we don't like the optics since the George right. Floyd stuff. You know, and I'm like, really, is that the reason? Um, but it can be used as an excuse. And I 100% agree that the relentless attack, I mean, think about it. You're in the FBI. You and 30 of your friends are being criminally questioned by John Durham, special counsel. Thank you very much. After he's sipping scotch with Bill Barr, the attorney general. Uh, and you're like, is, you know, that's going to have a chilling effect. And that's actually the purpose of the relentless attacks on the intelligence community and the FBI coming from Donald Trump and and his ilk. Um, so whether it's one guy using it as an excuse to sabotage right. stuff, because there's a lot of stuff that Dan Tuono threw a wrench in, to be honest. And I don't know if it's really because he truly is afraid of being investigated by Durham or, you know, a combination, but he can certainly use that as an excuse because it does impact everybody else. Hey, it could be something as simple as like the message he got from the seventh floor, the director's office at the FBI was don't use caution, use triple caution before going right. forward on these political cases. We don't want to subject this organization to the same sort of scrutiny as we have in the last few years. So be careful, be double careful, be triple careful. And that, that's enough right there to change the battlefield in terms of is the FBI doing its job enforcing the law against everyone, including the political class, 
in an equal way. And the, the more you shift that balance, um, the further away from that you get, it's really concerning. Like this, this idea that, oh no, we're going to, we're going to do this like an organized crime case. We're going to start from the bottom up. I got news for you. I did nothing but organized crime cases for the first 10 years of my career. Organized crime cases aren't run that way. Yes. You look at the little fish because they're the people who you can develop into witnesses more easily than, you know, the head of the family. But you also target the head of the family from day one, from the very beginning with things like Title III, electronic surveillance, undercover operations, because you don't just go start with Joe on the street doing hand-to-hand deals on the corner. You've got to go at all levels. You have to keep your eye on the prize. So the fact that they were satisfied with, let's just look at people for trespassing and not worry about whatever Donald Trump might have done, um, that's not how any case, certainly not how an organized crime case is investigated. No. And Cooney wanted to do it that way in February of 2021, got shot down. Uh, Wyndham wanted to do that when he got there and Graves when he got there and Olson when he got there at the end of of 2021, got shot down. They had to circumvent. They had to go around and and use the inspector general to to seize Eastman's phone and Clark's phone. So it's um, it's a good piece. I think it's framed. uh, I think it could be framed a little bit better. Um, These I think, you know, anyway. We could have discussions about about this for a very long time. I'm not saying that it was cool that it took eight months to start this investigation by any stretch. But, you know, people just laying the blame, putting up a Chiron, DOJ twiddled its thumbs for eight months, I don't think is accurate. I think there's a lot of nuance here. And and, uh, I agree. I think think it's that's an overly simplistic uh, uh, analysis. There's a lot going on here. I think it's important that we get to these things. And I think it's a good piece for that reason. And I'd like to see more more reporting on these lines for sure. Yeah. And we do have some uh, new reporting today in the January 6th probe, but we have to take another quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped 
of kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, News today, we have new testimony. In the January 6th probe in D.C., that is that grand jury is still working. Now, you know, last week, Andy, we talked about the two Nevada fraudulent electors that testified. Well, this week, per NBC, Gary Michael Brown was seen entering the Prettyman Courthouse where the January 6th grand jury meets. He is he was the deputy director of Election Day operations for Donald. He helped coordinate the fraudulent electors. He helped put pressure on state legislatures to to turn in fraudulent slates of electors. He's also repped by Stanley Woodward. I mean, who Uh, (laughs) isn't really at this point? (laughs) He's got an employee of the month plaque up in the bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, I think. Uh, He is paid for by the Save America PAC. And Andy, you and I discussed the possibility. I said, you know what? If these guys are coming in now, these guys had their phones seized. If you're coming in to testify to a grand jury, I don't feel like you're a target. I feel like you're a witness. I feel like these guys have flipped. Um, and you know, you, 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 I think you were like, yeah, I mean, generally you don't bring a target in and these are lower level folks in the fraudulent elector scheme. Um, but we just got news today from, uh, Polance and Reed, Paula Reed at CNN. Those two Republican fake electors had received limited immunity. Um, he, they had come in to testify earlier in the spring with all of the hundred or so fraudulent electors. A bunch of, well, some of them, a handful of them said, I'll take the fifth. And apparently Jack Smith said, nope, immunity, you got to come in now by the end of this month. I mean, he's putting timelines on this and and getting it done. And it seems to me like these are the stragglers. These are the, the last little bits of information that he needs, opposed to the people who, you know, cooperated voluntarily, like the eight fraudulent electors who yeah. wanted immunity deals down in Georgia. So I think that's sort of where we're at. I think that's a fair assumption. Um, you know, and that that is, you know, you start out in, your, in front of your grand jury bringing in like basic fact witnesses, victims, people who were there, saw who shot John, that sort of thing. And then as you get deeper and deeper into your investigation, you really start to identify those people who could really provide key testimony. And many of those people are facing potential charges themselves, and it is you know, it is that possibility of being charged criminally that causes those folks to go in front of the grand jury and invoke their Fifth Amendment right, which they have every, you know, they have every right to do. So I, I do think that as you see them coming back now, this is the end of a process. It's obviously like everything's more complicated than it looks. It's not just right. about like saying, okay, you, I am hereby immunize you, get in, get in tomorrow. They've been, they've been interviewed for days by the prosecutors and the agents back in the office. These are people who have who have been told this is what we're planning on doing, and they've they've indicated a willingness to go along with that, because you want someone who's going to te- ultimately testify willingly, like even if it is under a grant of immunity, you want someone who's going to be there, tell a story fully, completely, with detail, and make sense, and all that kind of stuff. You don't want a hostile witness. So 
they've probably looked at all those people who were potentially chargeable, picked out the two or three that are most, they think could be most relevant, tell that's, you know, had the best access, best, you know, were in the right positions to hear and hear the right things and talk to the right people. Um, and then they develop them as witnesses. And this is then how you get them in front of the jury just to nail down the testimony that you already heard back in the office. So it's probably what's going on here. Yeah. And CNN reported also that at least one other witness has spoken to investigators in the past two weeks outside the grand jury with an agreement that the person would be protected from potential prosecution. Um, at least half a dozen witnesses have testified before the federal grand jury in D.C. over four days in the past two weeks. Half a dozen in four days because they meet twice yeah. a week. Yep. Uh, in recent weeks, the special counsel's office has also shown interest in several members of Trump's post-election legal team who promoted baseless claims of widespread voter fraud, including Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, as well as Jeffrey Clark. So a lot of these questions are swirling around those folks. And um, finally, CNN mentions the prosecutors have also continued to focus on potential financial crimes and money laundering after Trump raised millions of dollars off of false claims that the election was stolen. You and I have been talking about this pretty easy fraud case, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, one former Trump campaign official who testified this month before the grand jury was asked about specific campaign ads and messaging produced as part of those fundraising activities. Uh, I mean, that so all goes right to the heart of an alleged fraud, right? And that's, that is a, you know, that is one way that you can take a group of people who were by their own account, I'm sure, providing legal advice to Trump and as he navigated the quandary of legal challenges uh, of the election and kind of separate them out from that. We're not going after you for the legal advice you provided. We're investigating you for, have been, for having been a co-conspirator in this fraud to raise money off of fraudulent claims. You knew there was no validity to these statements. They were used in the in these advertisements and you collected money as a result of that. So it's a pretty heavy hammer, especially to bring at a bunch of attorneys who typically see themselves operating under the cloak of attorney-client privilege at all times. Yeah, and I wonder if the these fraudulent electors, uh, like for example, the Nevada guys that were that that recently testified last week, the two Nevada Trump electors were given limited immunity. The state's Republican Party chairman, that's Michael McDonald, we talked about him, and Jim DeGraffenreid, they both testified. They spoke to the grand jury about the actions of Nevada's former GOP attorney, General Adam Laxalt, and Jesse Banal, a lawyer who worked for the Trump campaign in Nevada. So it's unclear as to whether these fraudulent electors are part of a larger investigation into Donald Trump himself with his pressure campaign uh, to state legislatures to, to hand over fraudulent electors, or if they're simply building cases against Rudy Giuliani and Eastman and Jeffrey Clark, um, and, and then maybe going up from there. It's, it's unclear also whether Jack Smith is going to charge the money laundering, you know, big lie thing separately from the fraudulent electors thing, separately from the incitation of the riot at the Capitol, separately from Trump's Pence pressure campaign separately, or if he's going to roll this all up into, I don't know, a Rico. I mean, it's it's hard to know by just the little bits of crumbs that we get coming out of just yep. seeing people headed toward a building. Uh, to to know exactly what's in his head, if he's going to wait and charge everybody at once, if he's going to start charging Eastman first and Clark and then rolling up from there like Mueller did. It's uh, well, Mueller was never going to charge Trump, but, 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it'll be I, interesting to see. I think that's, I, uh, I don't have anything to base this on, but it feels like biting that, you know, swallowing that entire burger with the first bite would be hard to do. You got to imagine a case that comes on very, very strong charges. If the Mar-a-Lago case is any example, it's going to be a speaking indictment and it's going to be based on, it's not just empty accusations. It's going to be based on verifiable fact, but I would expect that here with the diversity of potential charges that it seems that they're looking at, it, it will be a situation where you see that initial indictment followed by numerous superseding indictments that add defendants or add charges uh, to what will end up being a very, very large and complicated case. Yeah, it's definitely large and complicated, whether he does it all at once or puts it out in uh, piecemeal. Um, we'll see. Uh, I have faith in him, though. I think he's a great prosecutor so far from what I've seen in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, um, and he's pretty speedy. So who knows when we could start seeing that. Um <laughs> It could be any time between now and the end of the summer, Literally, I, I would imagine. Any mm -hmm. day could be, I could be getting the call, get down here, <laughs> get, get into the <laughs> in fact, In fact, Andy, 10 minutes after we're done recording this episode, <laughs> I'm going to go sit down <laughs> on the couch like, and we're going to get, we're going to get, they're voting. They're uh, voting. They're <laughs> voting on a true bill. Uh, um, I got we'll the timing we'll on have that to, last one so wrong. I was like, it's going to be another week. And then yeah, bam, it came and the next the, day. Then we'll have to record another uh, second episode for the second week in a row. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about a couple of just uh, wrap-up things uh, that's going on, some evidence that will help in the January 6th case. Uh, somebody else who is cooperating with the government today that could be relevant. Uh, it's a little hard to tell from the, the cooperation agreement. And then we want to take some listener questions, but we're going to take one, one more quick break, and we'll be right back with that. Stick around. <laughs> Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit 
standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, Andy, just to kind of piggyback on the last thing that we were uh, talking about, amassing all of this evidence that Donald Trump knew that there was no voter fraud, particularly when he's trying to defraud um, donors to the the non-existent election defense fund mm-hmm. or, you know, the Save America PAC. Um, Raffensburg, no, the uh, attorney general in Georgia uh, came back with, they've, they've done an exhaustive investigation, uh, particularly into uh, voter fraud in Georgia the suitcases claim the that Rudy makes suitcases of ballots. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Rudy video, right? Yep. And I was there uh, in the committee room uh, during the January sixth hearings when Shea Moss testified, yep. uh, and Ruby Freeman was there, and that was just heart wrenching. I remember uh, Harry Dunn getting up afterwards and and going making a beeline right for Shea Moss, giving her a hug and saying, "Thank you for telling your story. You know, that's bravery. You're brave." And I know this would have a lot of bearing on the Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia case. I know it will have a lot of bearing on uh, uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman's defamation lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani. But it also, I think, bears on Jack Smith's January 6th or at least wire fraud investigation in that it is yet another um, invest- like exhaustive investigation as to whether voter fraud happened or not that shows that it did not happen. I mean, the, the stack of proof against voter fraud just keeps growing. And I'm ass- I, I assume he, he might subsume this into his, um, his arsenal of evidence as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of kind of slamming the door shut on what could be brought up by, you name the defendant in any one of these January 6th related cases. It's a way of kind of you know, having that, um, having that card to play. Let's say Rudy Giuliani gets... Uh, charged at some point, whether it's in Georgia or in federal court. And his defense is, well, I really thought there there was, I'm telling you, there was fraud. I saw the video. There's fraud, there's fraud, there's fraud. They could then turn to the results of this other investigation and enter that as evidence. They'd have to have someone come in and testify from the attorney general's office, but but that's pretty easy to do. And they could really kind of slam that door closed, right, on that defense. So it's definitely a good thing for him to have. I think it's a really good thing for Fonnie Willis to have before she goes forward with her case. Yeah. Along with folks like BJ Pack, who wouldn't say he was like, we looked at this, there was nothing, you know, and then he, you know, so uh, there's just so much, so much evidence um, that they knew. uh, And this is just going to add to it. And then um, we're going to get to listener questions in a second. But I have a question before the listener question, Andy, because I saw the weirdest thing today. Um, Owen Schroyer, who is InfoWars co-host, Alex Jones's right-hand man. He was at the Willard in the War Room on January 5th and January 6th. Uh, he was in the Friends of Stone uh, encrypted messaging group. He <laughs> cut a deal. I'm not in that one. Just for, just for anybody <laughs> who's wondering. <laughs> Whatever, Deep State. I know what you're... Um, he, uh, that would be actually Deep State. Um, yeah, he, he, truly. <laughs> he, uh, he cut a deal with the government. 
uh, today. They, uh, I guess, uh, alleviated him of a few felonies in favor of pleading guilty to a misdemeanor. And when I looked, I'm like, oh, he flipped. He's got a cooperation deal because there was a minute order a few days ago that said he was they were changing his, uh, I guess, uh, what's I call it? A status, status. update hearing yep. to a change of plea hearing. I'm like, ooh. Here it and I was comes. like, maybe he's flipped. Maybe he's flipped. And then we get this thing. Here's the cooperation agreement. I finally look at the cooperation agreement and it's really narrow and I'm very confused because yeah. generally if you give up a couple felonies and let somebody plead down to a misdemeanor, you're getting a full cooperation out of that person. I've never seen this sort of cooperation. Can you read? There's, a, there's only one sentence here, what he has to do in order to get this deal. Yeah. So the sentence is, uh, it's very conveniently uh, written under the heading of cooperation with additional investigation. So that kind of draws your eye right in. And it says, your client agrees to allow law enforcement agents to review any social media accounts operated by your client for statements and postings in and around January 6, 2021, prior to sentencing, meaning he has to grant the agents that access to those accounts before he's sentenced on this misdemeanor that he pled guilty to. So that is the sum total of the <laughs> outstanding bill he has with the federal government, which is remarkable because I, I've i never seen one like this. Typically, when you um, sign someone up as a cooperator, there's a whole process that you go through. You start with proffer um, sessions where they tell you everything bad they ever did. Also, those are re frequently referred to as queen for a day because you can't actually get charged with anything you say in that session. Mm -hmm. um, and then you come to an agreement. Okay, this is the charge or charges that you'll plead guilty to. Um, but uh, but you're obligated to cooperate with the government. And the, and the cooperation piece is always written very nebulously. Like basically, you have to meet with the government, provide information and testimony. You know, that could involve testifying in other trials and things wherever and whenever the government wants you to. The government really holds a lot of leverage over you for an undefined period of time. And you don't get sentenced until the government decides that you are of no longer of use to them in anything. So this thing is the opposite. It's like, all you got to do is let us into your Facebook account, apparently, before you get sentenced or whatever other social media. Yeah, has. that's what it says, right? So social media acts, we get access to your social media accounts. I immediately go through the entire document and look for the government's definition of social media. Yeah. Does it does it include Signal? Does it include WhatsApp or is it just Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Telegram and po like is Truth Social on there? So uh, but and at first I was like, well, this is bullshit. Like, why? Who cares? You know, your Facebook posts are public. They must already have those. But then it occurred to me that if they have access to his social media accounts, that includes the private messaging that, right. that happens. And I, I was like, aha, because that would include any messages he sent to anybody uh, via Facebook, whether it's a Facebook messenger group or a Telegram messenger group uh, that to anybody uh, on or around January 6th. And that then could include people like Roger Stone and Ali Alexander and maybe some other folks they're looking at because it didn't make sense to me just to get some Facebook posts to find and get his other co-rioters that day. You generally don't give a plea deal to somebody to get a lateral arrest of another co-rioter. No. They, it seems they, like you would go up from yeah. there. And so I think that 
to me, that makes more sense. They clearly have a compelling interest in his communications on social media. And, and as you said, that wouldn't that interest would go beyond just like, who were you standing next to when you walked up to the Capitol? <laughs> it's going to be, he, he's interesting because he has access to people like Alex Jones and others. So that's probably what they're looking at. It's just a weird way to do it. It's almost <laughs> like a consent search. It's like, if you imagine he had exposure uh, in a criminal case that was basically based on his presence on the Capitol during the riot, right? And so they charge him with a couple of felonies. They end up pleading him down to a misdemeanor. That has happened to many, many defendants so far, many of whom probably didn't have to cooperate at all. But keep in mind, like if what they really are interested in is his communications with these other people, even in the days leading up to January 6th, they probably wouldn't have had probable cause to get a search warrant for those accounts. So they right, and they're not going to get cooperation from Roger Stone and Mike no. Flynn and so Bannon. Thought, and, this yeah. is a way to get to that content through this guy um, as part of his plea agreement. Now, there's another way you could have done it. You could have just said to him, hey, we'll plead you out, but first you got to sign this consent to search and we want to review all your accounts before the plea even goes through. I mean, I would have done it that way because who knows – what happens after the plea goes through. But it seems like that's their goal here. What they think is important about this guy is his communications with other people. And this was a way to get at those communications. Not really easy to say exactly what people they're interested in, but when you look at where he comes from and who he hangs out with, it's a pretty interesting list. Yeah. And I would imagine that the DOJ here doesn't really know what they're looking for either, because if they did know what was in there and they had probable cause to know what was in there, they probably would have been able to get a search warrant to get at of what course. was in there. It's a bit of a fishing expedition via a plea agreement, which is, I've never it's, seen yeah. that done before, but right? hey, good for you. Wouldn't you do the consent search, right? <laughs> yeah, it just seems like, I bet there's some really juicy stuff in there. We don't have enough proof to get a search warrant, so we'll plead you down if you let us in. It's going to be interesting. It will. It will. All right. All right. So we do some questions and then uh, wrap this one up. Yeah, right. that sounds good. All right. So the first one is really just to tie back to a topic we talked about, I think last week, we talked a bit about sentencing. And this question comes from Joe. Joe says, I find it hard to believe that the penalty for illegally retaining a one page classified document is the same as it would be for retaining thousands of pages of classified documents. Do I understand the law correctly? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, Joe, you have it basically in, in substance. So the, the example you've given is it is, there's a very big difference between having one document, one page long, or having thousands of documents that are classified. And that difference would typically be played out in the way that case was charged. So it's a diff, big difference between being charged with one count of violating the Espionage Act or a thousand counts, right? But it is true that if convicted on all those counts, no matter how many you're facing, it's likely, especially if it was part of the same unlawful retention of classified or national defense information, it's likely that the sentence you received for each one of those counts would be served concurrently. So yeah, it seems, you know, you were convicted of, let's say, oh, I don't know, I'll pick a number at random, 31 counts of violating <laughs> the Espionage Act. How if, random. If you're convicted on all 31, it's likely they'll, they'll you know, you can get, one, what is it, 10 years, I think, is the max? It's 10, uh, but also- but there's a lot there of factors are, in that as well. Yeah. Right. 
So it's not just limited to 10. And we saw that in the sentencing guidelines we went over. Right. As you, as you noticed, it was 17 and a half to 22 years. And that is because of the number of classified documents. That is right. A, uh, you, and because he was a leader and because right. he obstructed. So there's other factors that bring that number up above, a little bit right, above right. the so max sentence. even though you'd be sentenced probably concurrently, the sentence that you receive would reflect to some degree the number of documents that you had. It's complicated math, but mm-hmm. um, it's not quite as uh, it's not quite as absurd as it seems uh, in your question. Yeah, it's like getting a VA disability rating. You know, yeah, you got ten percent for your left foot, ten percent for your right foot, fifty percent for your brain, and somehow that adds up to thirty-three. You know, thirty percent. You know, it's the government. You can't it's, you can't figure it out. It's the government. Nope, nope. All right. So last question, and this is one uh, I didn't get a name on this one, but. Uh, A listener writes in, Andy, when you appear on CNN, where do you draw the line between giving law enforcement perspective and opining on politics? It's a great question. Um, So I'm, I'm, I was very clear when I started with CNN that I was not interested in doing politics or political commentary that my, my, where I come from is law enforcement and intelligence. And I think that's where I can help people understand those issues and comment on them. So I really try to uh, I, I try not to appear on panels with people that I know are going to be like really very focused on politics, which is fine. That's part of what CNN does. It's just not really my thing. The, where it gets a little tight is, you know, I feel like, especially on criminal matters, I can, I can maybe shed some light on like how investigations happen, how prosecutors make decisions, why some evidence is more important than others, or in the case of a, an accused person, why certain conduct is is maybe more easy to prove guilt or flagrant or what 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 have you. Where it gets tight is that there's so much criminal commentary to provide these days on political people. <laughs> Speaking, of course, of our former president Trump and you know many of the folks around him. So I try to keep my commentary on the ag- on the criminal investigative relevance. But it invariably puts me in a position of having to address his alleged conduct, like, for instance, in the documents case. And I do. So it's it's my opinion that the, it's a very strong case. And I think it's likely he'll be convicted. And just what we know so far shows that he's he did many, many things that he should not have done with some very sensitive material. Now, just because I'm saying a negative thing about the conduct of a political person I don't believe that makes it political commentary. Um, it's unfortunate that political people get involved sometimes in criminal matters, but you got to call it as you see it. So, Well, just like whether you decide to open an investigation or not, if you didn't make those comments, exactly. that would be a political consideration. And, you know, I think it's also just they're always going to on the on like people like Jim Jordan are always going to say you are politicizing the DOJ, you are weaponizing the DOJ right. just because you go after facts. Right. Or people. It just so happens your party is breaking the law more often. I'm sorry. If that's I mean, the case. it is what it is. Right. And I'm sure that over the arc of time, those things even out. out, you can look mm-hmm. at DOJ and the FBI and see a pretty even Stephen approach to one side and the other. But if the DOJ or the FBI stops investigating or opening cases because they're wary of doing work that involves or targets political people, 
that's the politicization of the Department of Justice and the FBI that we should be really, really concerned about. I never saw that in my work. Um, but anyway, I don't feel like pointing the finger when the finger is deservedly pointed as a political act. Yeah, no, I agree. And that takes us back to that Carol Lennig piece in the Washington Post um, with, with some of the some of the reluctance um, yeah. within the FBI to get things done. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much for your questions. If you have questions, you can send them in to hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Put Jack in the subject line. Otherwise, it'll get lost in the shuffle. And we'll answer your questions. Andy, do you have anything else you want to uh, talk about before we get out of here and find out that indictments are going to drop 10 <laughs> minutes after we're done recording? No, I just want to get off this recording and run away before that happens. So I'll be, I'll be <laughs> somewhere doing something fun instead of uh, reading another <laughs> indictment. No, I'm just kidding. I look forward to all the indictments that are coming. And no doubt they're on their way. And um, we will be right here dicing through them and examining them with uh, all of you and I look forward to doing that. Yeah, me too. Everybody, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. We'll see you next week or maybe later tomorrow <laughs> on Jack. Stop. <laughs> MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.